Well, if you would, open up with me and let's look together at the book of Exodus, the book of Exodus in chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. We're looking again at this great passage concerning how God called Moses to be the Savior of Israel when they were in bondage in Egypt. Uh, Exodus chapter 3, if you want to use one of the the Bibles and the seats in front of you, uh, you'll find this on page 46 in those Bibles. Remember, Moses is now 80 years old. So gone is is the recklessness of his youth. Uh, Moses likely gave up on seeing Israel released from their bondage to Egypt many years ago. Moses is a shepherd. He has a wife. He has two boys. As far as we can tell, he's planning on living out the rest of his life here in Midian as a simple shepherd. And then all of a sudden, God speaks. And Moses' life is radically changed forever. Remember, the account we're reading here is not a conversion Account. Moses is a believer in the true God before this encounter. Uh, this is not a calling to salvation that we're about to read. But Exodus 3 is the account of Moses' call to a special ministry. The ministry of leading God's people out of Egypt. And what a call it is. Uh, it is an example of special revelation of God making Himself known in a special, supernatural way to the mind and the heart of a person. We saw last week that this is exactly what happens when a person is called to the ministry. More importantly, this is what happens when somebody is called to salvation. God interrupts their lives and He speaks to them in a way that grips their hearts and their minds and changes them Forever. And so I want us to look again at verses 1 through 6. Exodus 3, verses 1 through 6. And this is not merely the word of man, this is the very word of Almighty God. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father in law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Well, this morning I want to focus in this passage particularly on the burning bush. And more specifically, I want us to focus on the one 
who spoke to Moses from this bush. We read that the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a flame of fire in the midst of the bush. And so the bush is on fire, but it's not being burnt up. And what I want to do is make five statements this morning about this person who appears to Moses in a flame of fire in the midst of this bush. Here we go. Number one. Number one. The fire in the midst of this bush was a manifestation of the angel of the Lord. The fire in the midst of this bush was a manifestation of the angel of the Lord. In other words, this was not simply a normal fire. This is not like someone took a lighter and and simply set a bush on fire. This fire was a visible way in which the invisible angel of the Lord made himself known. So think about what we know about about angels from the Bible. Uh, Angels are spirits. Spirits are invisible to the human eye. But angels have the ability, though they're invisible, to to take on a visible form. And that's what we have here. And this is not the only time that Moses is going to encounter something like this. Later, the angel of the Lord will accompany Israel on their exodus journey through the wilderness. The angel of the Lord will appear as a pillar of cloud by day and as a pillar of fire by night. And these will be visible expressions of the angel of the Lord. Number two, the angel of the Lord in the bush is Christ, the Son of God. The angel of the Lord in the bush is Christ, the Son of God. Uh, The angel of the Lord who appears here and he appears elsewhere in the pages of the Old Testament is the second person of the Godhead, the one we now know as our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Why do I say that? Why do I say this this is Jesus here speaking to Moses out of the bush? Let me make some points to prove that to you. Number one, it's evident here in Exodus 3 that the angel of the Lord is not a mere creature, but he is divine. It's very clear in this passage that the angel of the Lord is divine. In verse 2, we're told that the angel of the Lord was in the midst of the fire. But in verse 4, it's Yahweh. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, who calls out to Moses from the bush. In other words, the angel of the Lord and Yahweh, the name of God, are used interchangeably in this passage. The word God is also used. Do you see that? In verse 4, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush. So in verse 2, the angel of the Lord is in the midst of the bush. In verse 4, Yahweh himself is in the midst of the bush. We could see the same thing happen in Judges chapter 6, where the angel of the Lord appears to a man named Gideon. And the angel of the Lord speaks to Gideon. 
And several times in that passage, we're told that this person who is appearing to Gideon, this person who is speaking to Gideon, is the angel of the Lord, also called the angel of God. But then several other times in that same passage, we're told that it is the Lord, Yahweh, who is appearing to Gideon, who is speaking to Gideon. Judges 6.12, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, verse 14, And the Lord turned to him and said... So both in Exodus 3, and then later in Judges 6, and many other passages in the Bible teach that the angel of the Lord is Yahweh, is God. But the angel of the Lord is also somehow distinct from Yahweh. He's Yahweh, but he's not Yahweh because he's the angel of Yahweh. Right? He's the angel messenger. He's the messenger of Yahweh. So this, this messenger is Yahweh, and yet he's distinct from Yahweh. What do we do with that? Well, friends, the doctrine of the Trinity didn't just come out of nowhere. Uh, the doctrine of the Trinity comes out of passages like these. We have an answer for how the angel of the Lord can be both God and yet distinct from God. The angel of the Lord must be one of the three persons of the Godhead. And since he is the angel of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord, he probably is not God the Father. So he must be either God the Son or God the Holy Spirit. Now, why do we think that the angel of the Lord is God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, first... In the Scriptures, we see the angel of the Lord worshipped. In Judges 6, for example, Gideon builds an altar to the angel of the Lord and worships the angel of the Lord. Now, if this had been any created angel, if this had been any other angel other than the angel of the Lord, this would have been terrible. You remember how John, in the book of Revelation, begins to worship an angel, and the angel says, stop, don't worship me, worship God alone. So for Gideon to be worshiping this angel of the Lord, and for the angel of the Lord to let him, seems to indicate that the angel of the Lord is God. But here's the difference between the Son and the Spirit. While it is certainly appropriate to worship the Holy Spirit, and to honor the Holy Spirit, we typically see the Spirit in the Bible putting the spotlight on the Lord Jesus Christ. Typically in the Bible, when someone is offering worship and it's not to the Father, it is to the Son. Then there's Exodus 23, verses 20 through 23. Turn there real quick. Exodus 23, just just a few pages over in your Bible, because I think this passage is helpful to us. Exodus chapter 23, beginning in verse 20. Beginning in verse 20. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be 
an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorite, so forth and so on. God says here that the angel that he is to send is to be obeyed. God says this angel has his name in him. But what I think is most revealing of all is he says this angel of the Lord has the ability to forgive sins. He says, this angel of the Lord, what? Uh, Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. Meaning that this is an angel of the Lord who has the authority to give pardon or to withhold pardon. Now, when we think about the members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, who do we normally think of as having the authority to forgive sins? Is it not the Lord Jesus Christ? You remember the story of the paralytic that was brought to Jesus and how his friends had to put a hole in the roof and and lower their friend down into the room so that he could be healed by Jesus. And Jesus looks at the paralytic man lying there on the bed and says, Your sins are forgiven. Not what they expected. They expected him to say, Get up and walk. You are healed. And instead he looks at the man and he looks at all of these people looking at him in the room. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven you. Luke 5. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Jesus' healing of this man was to demonstrate that he had been given authority on earth to forgive sins. And so the fact that the angel of the Lord is worshipped, the fact that the angel of the Lord has authority to forgive sins, seems to be ample evidence that this is in fact no mere angel. This is the Son of God Himself. Mount Hermon, do we understand that Jesus was not passive before He came as a baby in a manger? Jesus has always existed and He has been active in this world long before He became a man. We see Him appear again and again in the pages of the Old Testament, radically altering history. Now, we have seen that this fire in the midst of this bush is the angel of the Lord. We've seen good reason to believe that this angel of the Lord is Jesus. I want to give you three more points, our last of the five, that are conclusions from this. And here is our third point, and it's really important. This means that Jesus is Yahweh. This means that Jesus is Yahweh. Since we've seen that the angel of the Lord in both Exodus 3 and Judges 6 is equated with the Lord Himself, we must assume that Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is not, as some cults claim, the first of God's creation. Right? This, is, this is the view of several cults in our day. Jesus was the first thing that God created. No, Jesus is not merely a supreme man. He is not merely the highest angel. Jesus is God. 
Where should you look to know God? You should look to Christ. When Paul takes Old Testament passages that refer to Yahweh, and in the New Testament he uses them as referring to Christ, he's not doing something out of bounds. And he's not doing something that he just decided with his own imagination, hey, let's let's do this. He is following the very pattern of the Old Testament. When Paul takes Joel's statement that everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh will be saved, and Paul quotes that in Romans 10 and says this is about Jesus, everyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. He's not doing something that's illegitimate. He's bringing the point home. Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is the God on whom people must call if they are to be saved. We're going to see this again and again. Uh, A little bit later in this chapter, God is going to reveal His name to Moses. Moses, I am who I am. And then Jesus comes in the Gospel of John and he just keeps saying again and again, I am, I am. Before Abraham was, Jesus said, I am. So let this fall on you with full weight. The Jesus who went to the cross and died was Yahweh, the creator and sustainer of the universe. It was God who died on the cross. Certainly it was the humanity of Christ that suffered and died, but nevertheless, the Scriptures do not shrink from using this language. It was God who died on the cross. Paul told the Ephesian elders in the book of Acts to to care well for 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 the flock because God bought them with His blood. That's strange language. The blood of God was shed for you. Who was on that cross 2,000 years ago? It was God Himself. Now that ought to cause us to marvel and to wonder and to be amazed. Now, at this point, I want to stop and deal with an objection. Uh, Several times we as a church have spoken of Bart Ehrman, the professor of religious studies, not only the professor of religious studies, he is the chair of the religion department at UNC Chapel Hill, so just down the road. And Ehrman continues to put out book after book after book, seeking to undermine and to destroy the Christian faith. Um, Ehrman's scholarship is shaky. Every time he writes a book, evangelicals are more than able to respond, pointing out not only where he is uh, saying things that are untrue, but also showing how he contradicts himself and showing sometimes how he can be even dishonest and unfair in his work. But nevertheless, every time one of Dr. Ehrman's books come out, suddenly he's all over the place. He's on the morning news shows. He's on Good Morning America. He's on the the Comedy Central Colbert Report and uh, The Daily Show. And he shows up on NPR interviews. And and every time a new book, here he is again in the media, Bart Ehrman. And the secular media keeps putting him before us as someone who in their mind is putting the death nail into Christianity. Uh, so that anyone who continues to believe that Christianity is true must be a fool. Now, Ehrman's most recent book, just came out a few months ago, is entitled this, How Jesus Became God, 
the exaltation of a Jewish preacher from Galilee. And Ehrman says, What I argue in the book is that during his lifetime, Jesus himself did not call himself God, did not consider himself God, and that none of his disciples had any inkling at all that he was God. The book goes on to deny the resurrection. For Ehrman, Jesus was a preacher from the backwaters of Galilee, whose main message was that the end of the world was coming, and that that was all that Jesus was. But he believes that after Jesus died, his followers had hallucinations, visionary experiences, and that they convinced themselves that Jesus had risen from the dead. Now, there were about 30 years between when Jesus died and we have the first of the Gospels, probably the Gospel of Mark. And what Ehrman argues is this. He says that Jesus' disciples still didn't think of Jesus as God. They had no idea that, that He should even be called God. But they did believe He was the Messiah. And so they began telling other people about Jesus and telling people the things He had done and the things He had preached, and, and they would believe. And then those people would begin telling people. And then those people would believe and begin telling people. And what you have is the telephone game. You ever played the telephone game? And in Ehrman's view, the stories kept getting exaggerated and exaggerated. That the first disciples were simply talking about things he had said, but, but over time it became, he can calm the wind and the waves. He, he raised a dead man from, from the dead. He, he healed a, a person that was born crippled and a person born blind. And, and he argues that all of these things were just fantastic tales that were made up as the story kept being passed along. He says, finally, there's this young man named Mark hanging out at the church in Rome 30 years later and that he hears these stories and writes them down and that that was the beginning of Jesus suddenly being not just a preacher from Galilee but being known as God. According to Ehrman, there was a real Jesus, but this man never claimed to be God, certainly was not God, and that the whole idea that he's God is preposterous. And what's interesting is that while there have been other theories proposed, Ehrman's view has become the mainstream view. So if you go to most any state university, if you go to most any liberal university, this is the explanation they're going to give for Christianity, that we have been fooled into thinking that Jesus is God. So, we have unbelieving friends. They're going to read this stuff. Online, they're gonna they're gonna hear NPR specials about this. They're gonna see the National Geographic, you know, special on the history of Jesus, and and they're gonna hear people purporting these theories. How are you gonna respond? How are you gonna be able to defend the truth that Jesus is God? Well, friends, the best thing you can do first and foremost is point people back to the scriptures themselves. There is nothing more convincing than the power of the Holy Spirit when people begin to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ in the pages of the Bible. At the end of the day, it is not scientific arguments, it is the revelation of God that will change someone's heart, mind, and life. And so we always should point people back to the Scriptures. But there are some things that we can see as Christians, that we can say as Christians, to show how faulty 
that secular perspective of Jesus really is. So let me just mention some of these to you. First of all, the idea that that the divinity of Jesus developed over time and that His earliest disciples did not believe Jesus to be God, that is just blatantly not true. Ehrman argues that that passing down these stories from one person to another person to another person is what turned Jesus from a mere preacher to God Himself. But that fails to recognize that during the days before the printing press, oral tradition was not treated so casually and loosely. Books were a rare luxury in the first century. People were used to passing down the stories of history in the form of oral stories. And so it is not at all a given that people would have just turned them into fish stories, stretching the truth, stretching the truth, stretching the truth. That's not at all a given. But second, and even more importantly, in the years between Jesus' death and the writing of Scripture, there were many, many people who were alive who could testify as to whether or not what people were hearing about Jesus was true or not. Bart Ehrman has Mark hearing these stories 30 years later, way off in Rome. But we know from Papias that Mark was Peter's secretary, that he spent time with Peter, that he learned directly from Peter who had walked with Jesus. There's good reason to believe that Mark grew up in Jerusalem, that his mother's house was one of the houses that the early church met in. That We see that in the book of Acts. This was not hearsay upon hearsay. Mark wrote his gospel based on what he heard directly from those guys who had walked and talked with Jesus. Luke, who wrote Luke and the Gospel of Acts, said he did a great deal of research before writing his Gospel, that he interviewed people, he spoke with those who were involved. He traveled with Paul, he was there for many of the events that he records in the book of Acts. Or think about this, Joseph and Mary had children besides Jesus. Jesus was virgin born, but and despite what Roman Catholics say, Mary did not remain a virgin. She had children. The brothers and sisters of Jesus, they show up in the Gospels. Mark 6, on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. Many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? Jesus had a number of siblings. And we know that at least two of them became leaders in the church. Two of them wrote New Testament letters, the book of James, the book of Jude. So if the brothers of Jesus had become convinced that Jesus really was God, that ought to stand as a pretty powerful witness. These men would not have come to this conclusion based on the stories that were told to them by other people, by other people, by other people, by other people. They would have become convinced by their own experience and what they bore witness to. Even into the next century, the 100s, Uh, Jude's grandsons, so these are the great nephews of Jesus, the great nephews of Jesus were still known among the churches and were involved in the churches of Christ, bearing witness to what their family had passed down about who Jesus was. The uncle of Jesus. Do you know about Jesus' uncle? 
Cleophas. Uh, Cleophas was the brother of Joseph. Uh, Cleophas is likely one of the two men who were walking on the road to Emmaus when Jesus appeared to them after the resurrection. We have many documents that show that Jesus' uncle was well known in the early church and that people could have checked with him to ask, are the stories true? And so on and on we could go. We know, for example, that other people who show up in the Gospels were active in the early church and could bear witness to what they saw. Uh, We read in the Bible about Alexander and Rufus, and uh, they were able to tell us how their father was the one who carried the cross for Jesus uh, on the road to Golgotha. We know there was a fellow named Quadratus that many of the, I'm sorry, we know from a fellow named Quadratus that many of the people that Jesus healed in the Gospels became members of local churches and went around bearing testimony to how Jesus healed them. So this wasn't hearsay upon hearsay upon hearsay upon hearsay, as NPR is going to tell you. It's, I was there, I was blind, He healed me. And these people, after Jesus had gone up into heaven, were traveling around sharing their stories. They didn't simply get healed and then fall out of history. They lived for many more decades and shared their story. Paul spoke of 500 people who saw the risen Lord Jesus and said that, reminded the Corinthians that these people were still alive when he wrote that letter, that they could check with them to see if what he was saying was true. On and on, on we could go. Mount Hermon, there is simply no rational way to say that the early church slowly developed the idea of Christ's divinity or that they made up the idea. To believe that, you would have to believe in a massive conspiracy of the likes that this world has never seen. The objective, reasonable conclusion is that Jesus really is God, and we see it taught not only in the New Testament, but if the angel of the Lord is Jesus, as I've tried to show you, it is clear even in the Old Testament that Jesus is divine, Jesus is God. Last two points very quickly. We have the angel of the Lord. He's speaking out of the bush. The angel of the Lord is God. He is Jesus. Jesus is God. But notice, fourthly, that Jesus is only one person of the Godhead. Jesus is fully God, that the fullness of God dwells in Him bodily, but He's also distinct from God. He's the angel of the Lord. And so the Trinity is not just something that is taught in the New Testament. The Trinity is taught in the Old Testament too. All the way back in Genesis 1, where you have the Father in Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That's the Father. Then you have verse 2, the Spirit was hovering over the face of the waters. And then verse 3, God spoke. And John 1 tells us that the Word was Jesus Himself. Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image. All the way in the first chapter of the Bible, we have this Trinity doctrine taught. And we see it here in Exodus 3 with the angel of the Lord. And then fifth and finally, from all of this, we can conclude, just to drive it home, it was Jesus who spoke to Moses. It was Jesus who spoke to Moses. Now think about that. Our Jesus the one we normally think about speaking with with Peter and James and John. And here he is thousands of years before that speaking to Moses. Don't let anyone ever tell you 
that the God of the Old Testament is somehow different from the God of the New Testament. And don't let anyone ever tell you that that the way of salvation in the Old Testament was different than the way of salvation in the New Testament. Jesus always has been, is, and forever will be God. Jesus always has been, is, and forever will be the way of salvation. Now, next week we'll dive more into, okay, but what does it mean, holy ground, and take your sandals off, and we're going to talk about all that next week, but I want to end with just some implications of this truth that it was Jesus speaking to Moses in the burning bush. Some implications. Number one, first, when you read the Old Testament, always do so with an eye out for the Lord Jesus Christ. Always look for Jesus in the Old Testament. Remember that Jesus was able to show those two men on the road to Emmaus, He was able to show them from the Old Testament all these truths about Himself. The Old Testament, no less than the New, is about Jesus. And He is in the pages of the Old Testament. Who is the angel of the Lord that met with Abraham? It's Christ. Who is this priestly king called Melchizedek that Abraham pays tithes to? There's good reason to believe that was Christ as well. Who is the angel of the Lord that travels with Israel through the wilderness in a pillar of cloud in the daytime and a pillar of light at night? It's, it's Jesus. Who is the captain of the Lord's armies that meets with Joshua right before the battle of Jericho? It's Jesus. Who is the angel of the Lord that fought for Gideon and for Israel? Who is the angel of the Lord that appeared and promised the birth of Samson? Who is the angel of the Lord that sent pestilence among Israel, killing 70,000 men? Who is the angel of the Lord that appeared to Elijah when he was famished, depressed, and ready to die, and strengthened him? Who was that fourth man in the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Who was the angel of the Lord that spoke to the prophet Zechariah? Dear friends, who was it that Isaiah saw sitting on the throne, high and lifted up, with the train of his robe filling the temple? The creatures crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. It was the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is all over the Old Testament. See Him there and be amazed. Implication number two. Since Jesus is God, make sure you revere Him that way. Make sure you revere Him that way. Make sure you never think of Jesus as anything less than God. Do you ever use the name of Jesus in an irreverent way? God forbid you ever use the name of Jesus as a curse word in a moment of frustration. Repent of that. Let let the name of the Lord Jesus Christ be forever reverenced by you and treated with love and adoration and humility. The name of Jesus is the name of God. Jesus, name of matchless splendor, name all other names above, glorious Son of God incarnate, King of kings and Lord of love, name that to our hearts is nearest, here the stricken soul doth hide, name that to our hearts is dearest, as in Jesus we confide. 
One more verse. Jesus, sweetest note of any in the lowly pilgrim song. Jesus, the triumphant music of the bright angelic throng. Earth to him her face upraises, knows him as the great I am. Heaven resounds with Jesus' praises. Glory to the bleeding lamb. Is the name of Jesus the name of matchless splendor to you? Is it the sweetest name you know? Does it keep you singing as you go? What does it mean to you? Third and finally, understand that since Jesus is God, you cannot have a right relationship with God apart from Jesus. Do you want peace with God? Do you want to have a right relationship with Him? There is only one way. You must come to terms with Jesus Christ. He is God and He is man. He is the mediator that brings man and God together. He is the bridge that brings God and man together. And He is our only hope of salvation. If you want to know God as your God, if you want to have Him as your Father, then you must turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust Him and follow Him and worship Him because He is God. Let's pray.